I want you to open to Psalms 36 just for a moment. Verse 3, that's where we were last week talking on the subject, the danger of leaving off. The danger of leaving off. Or the danger of forsaking or leaving or just letting alone. You'll get the picture. I think you already probably do. The psalmist begins in verse 1 by obviously referring to what he has heard from wicked people that he's been around, the talk that they talk. And he, in remembrance of that, he said, you know, there's no fear of God in these people, the ones he's talking about. Listen to them. They flatter themselves in their own eyes until their iniquity is found to be hateful. You get tired of listening to them. And then he said in verse 3, the words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit. He has left off to be wise and to do good. Now, the word left off is where the message comes from. Another translator said he has ceased to be wise and do good, indicating that maybe there was a time or a moment that they were wise. They did do what was right. They were following a right way which is a wise thing to do. Another translation says he has stopped acting wise and doing good. There are reasons that people do leave off. There are reasons that many people begin the Christian life and quit living the Christian life. You have to admit there are religious atmospheres that are easy to fit into and just follow along because they really don't know where they're going, so there's no challenge. It's just a system of worship. You go, you attend, you do what you're supposed to do, and when it's over, you go home, and that's basically it. You're a good person. But when you begin to teach and explain what the Bible says and what is meant by phrases and sayings of Jesus... You know, God has to give you revelation of this. You can just read it and nothing comes out of it. But when there's an anointed time of reading or an anointed time of listening, then God begins to show you what he's saying. You get a picture. And then there comes a challenge. And then sometimes a challenge for many people is, I don't know if I want to go this far, go this way. I don't know if I want to believe it that much. They have limits they put on themselves. And wherever they are, whatever they are, At that point, people draw back or they leave off of doing what the Lord wants them to do, which is a wise thing to do. The man that digged down and found the rock was a wise man, meaning that he found out the truth. And when he found the truth, he began to build on his life. And a lot of people don't want to go that far. It's just a little bit excessive. We don't know very many people that really go that far. Therefore, and there's many, many reasons that people leave off from being wise or from doing good. We mentioned last week in John chapter 6 and verse 66 when the disciples of Jesus turned back from following him. And the Bible said from that time many of his disciples went back and went no more with him. Interestingly, the word went back in the Greek language says this in Vincent's word studies, which is a a good one. He said, the Greek expresses more than the English. They went away from Christ, literally to the things of Christ, to what they had left in order to follow the Lord. In other words, there was a time 
they saw the challenge. They left where they were and what they had been doing, and they at least formally forsook all of this and turned to the Lord. We've all seen it. That everybody lasts a while, maybe a week, maybe a month, but everybody will stay with this Christian decision for a while, some longer than others. But there's always a reason why they don't go any further. And this word went back means that what they came away from, they turned back to when they heard the teaching. When Jesus began to explain some things, they said, I don't want any part of that. I don't know that I'm ready for that. That sounds extreme. That sounds like a little bit beyond what is ordinary or acceptable. I don't think I'm ready to do that. And they turned back. And they went back, the Greek word, to what they were. They would no longer go with him. They were aware of Jesus. They could tell you who he was. I've listened to him. I've heard him preach. Yeah, he's quite a boy. Yeah, all of that. But his teaching's a little extreme. His teaching is a little bit beyond what I think is, is acceptable. I think he just goes a little too far with this. Many people draw back and would not company with him anymore, one translation says. So the picture we have, the picture I want you to see, is that one of those conversations that we have all the time, all of us, at some point in your Christian life, you engage in a conversation about why somebody quit or why somebody changed the course of their life. Or why somebody gave up something that was good and wise for something that was less and unwise, maybe easier. We all talk about it. Maybe preachers do more than others because we have to watch it more than others. You know, we're always glad when people come and and we always wonder why people leave. And then the rumor mill heats up because a lot of people ask questions from different people. You get different answers, and then you assume and draw different conclusions. Then we begin into gossip and backbiting and tailbearing, and we offend people. But we do ask the question, I wonder why they gave up. I wonder why they went back. If everybody that had come to this church moved here to come to this place in the last 30 years, if they were still here, we'd have to have three or four meetings a morning just so we could accommodate all of them. But there are reasons. I'm not talking about people who just weren't, that the chemistry wasn't right for them, that there was another place they belonged. I'm just talking about people who don't want to go any further in this direction. You're either legalistic or extreme or something. And they turn back. But here's the deal. The Word of God addresses turning back. In Second Peter 2, he talks about, those who have known the way and then depart from the way. They've known it, and they depart from it. He said it's like the dog that goes back to his vomit. That's disgusting. Or a hog that goes back to the mire. One translator says that word means filth or manure. The picture that God gives is what you go back to when God brings you to what he has for you, and you don't want it, and you turn to something similar or something that's modified somewhat, but it's to your liking. It's like going back to vomit or manure, and and, and you know how that would sound if people thought you were talking about them. Hebrews 10 talks about if any man draw back. I mean, the Bible addresses this a lot. If you start, stay with you put your hand on the plow, leave it there. If you 
you know you're supposed to walk by faith and somebody explains what faith is, you go, whoa, that sounds, whoa. But wait a minute, there is no option here. We don't have anything else. God doesn't say, but if that doesn't work for you, find out what does and just do good. He doesn't say that. that this is how we walk. This is what faith is. Explain it to the people. Let them make a decision. So you show what faith is. There are many who get it. There are more minis who don't want it. For what, I don't know. I chose this way of life many years ago. It has never yet to this day occurred to me that there's anything else. I've heard all the stories. I've been in debates and discussions. I found nothing yet in in all these last 45 years, I found nothing else besides what I got. There's no other way that I would want. But that's because I made a decision a long time ago that I'm not going back. I don't want to look back to what I came out of because there was nothing there. It was death. And so the only thing I had was to press forward. And that's all any of us have. That's what we have facing us now as Christian people. We must go forward. Our life is going uphill without breaks, and you have to keep going. And turning back is the worst decision that men will ever make. Because turning back is not a good thing. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, you turn back to destruction. So we ask the question, why are the people turning back? We began last week, first of all, by saying because they had a defective start. I do not believe that everybody that has come to the Lord has really and truly been born again. I don't believe that. I believe a lot of them are, obviously. But it shows up. If you have been born again, anybody in this room, if you have been born again, we will all know it. Your life is a different life than it used to be. I was walking two days ago out, just walking out in the country there, walking around, enjoying, trying to, scenery, and I had a hat on that had on it awesome faith. I don't I think I bought it at Walmart. How it got in there, I do not know, but it was uh, had awesome faith. It had a scripture verse on it. It was 2 Corinthians 5, 7. But I was thinking it was verse 17. So I started uh, just walking along, huffing and puffing a little bit, and I, I started preaching. I just said, what if I right now just had to start preaching on 2 Corinthians 5, 17? You know, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, all things become. And right away I said, I have a problem with that. I'll wait till next Sunday to explain all this. I got a problem with that. Because not everybody that says they're in Christ is in Christ. Because if old things don't pass away, you're not in Christ. Now see how hard that sounds? We would rather nobody say that so we can all assume that because we read that, we are. But the fact of the matter is there's got to be proof. There's evidence. So I got to preach. It was a pretty good sermon. At the time, I thought, I need a piece of paper and a pencil here, but that wouldn't work. It might not have been to you. It was to me. But anyway, this business of drawing back is because a lot of people never had a right start. They joined. They wanted relief from, from the agony in their life or the drugs or the breakup of a home or a marriage or loss of a child or an accident or something. They were grieving and sad and sorrow and they saw God as a solution to this. And so they, they come to the Lord and for a while they felt better. Maybe they joined church, raised their hand, somebody talked to them, 
read the Bible, bought a Bible, and they started feeling better about their lives, but there was an emptiness in their heart. There was something in there that wasn't committed to God. There was a need I want God to help me with, but I don't want God to take all of me. I'm not willing to to receive and live that kind of a life. They do this for a while, and then it doesn't last. Because I do not believe they had a a true born-again experience. I know a lot that would offend a lot of people if you told them that, but I could say if I had to, I even thought of this. What if I had to line up the whole church and say to them before the Lord came, while there's still time, and line them all up, and, and they would say, do you believe I'm born again? And, and I thought, you know, there's a lot of people that would never come back here again because I would say, no, I don't. I think you're a decent person. I think you're a kind person. You're, you're, you're fun to be around. But as far as a born again, a new creature in Christ, everything in your life is new and you're living it and we see it? No, I don't think so. I know you're not perfect. I know we make mistakes. And I know that not every day is a, is a lollipop day. But every day is not a drudgingly difficult <laughs> You don't do what you used to do. You're a new creature. No, I don't think everybody's born again, but I think you could be. God's the one that gives birth to it. He births in us himself. Just like you plant a little grain of corn into the ground. And when that corn begins to grow, it reproduces itself many times over. And what's supposed to happen to us is that the life of Christ begins to reproduce himself in us so that we are little reproductions of the original. To be like Jesus, we sing, the measure, the stature of the fullness of Christ, living as he lived and walking as he walked. We're not even sure that's possible, but if you're born again, you know you can do that. You don't know how, but you know you can God did not give you something to do that he cannot cause to happen. Therefore, it will happen. And I'm not going to give up the struggle of getting there because this life is going to be full of struggles and difficulties. The second thing that we said, and this is where we ended, a lot of people give up because of a neglect of personal devotion and corporate fellowship or church fellowship. Personal devotion. I'm convinced that every Christian needs to spend time with the Lord personally, quietly. You and the Lord. Now, you cannot see him, but he that comes to God must believe that he is. And therefore, you're talking to somebody that you only have faith in. Now, he's there, but you don't have any physical awareness of it. You just know that that this is the way it is. We live as though he is. That though he listens, he watches, he knows, nothing is hidden from him. We are living like that because he knows the thoughts and the intents of our hearts because he's God. So I need to spend time with him. There needs to be a pattern of devotion in my life. It may not be as consistent as I wish it would be or want it to be, but there needs to be this awareness and an effort of having time with God. Even if you just begin one day by, as, as what most of us need to do, I choose, I'm making the decision today. Today, beginning today, I will, 
I will start spending time every day with the Lord, period. I will. I give you my word, Lord. Now that's commitment. I give you my word. And then you do it. And I don't matter who calls on the phone, you turn it off. You just say, no, sir, I have assigned to myself a need. And you start out, the devil will fight you. He will try to prevent it. He'll show you all the things you got to do right now. You don't have time right now, maybe later. And when you do sit down to read, you'll read the same sentence five times, and then you'll have to, what, wait a minute, let me start. what did that say? Read it again. Read it six, read it ten times. But just read it. Stay with it. And you will be amazed as, as you begin to strive and put yourself into this and force your way in here ugh, with effort. You'll be amazed at how the thoughts that pop into your mind are the words of God to your heart. And you will begin to have communion with the Lord. If you stay with it, and I'm sure you will if you make the right kind of decision, eventually it might take a while. It might take a year. It might take six months. But there will come a time you'll look forward to this because it is a time when God really does speak to your heart. And you love it. You cherish it. And you want it. And where you used to spend five minutes every morning, now you're wanting to spend an hour with the Lord. It's unlike anything else in life. Because nothing else in life can do for you what that time does. You forced yourself into it. God met you there. Allowed you to be tested to see if you'd stay with it even though you can't sense anything. And then he began to deal with you and speak to you. And then your life begins to take on a different kind of purpose. God is speaking to you. Then you find yourself praying. You begin to be concerned about somebody besides you. And you start praying. And your prayer is not just a mouthy prayer. It's an earnest prayer. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Or you pray in the Spirit. You pray in T-O-N-G-U-E-S, tongues. You begin to pray that way because it's something God gave you to do that with. You don't know how to pray as you ought. You know you should pray. But there's things that God alone, by his Spirit, can bring forth that you couldn't in with your understanding. It's just the fact that you're now beginning to give yourself not only to God, but let God use you on the behalf of other people. It's personal, private time with God that develops, that begins to grow. And when you do that, peace begins to come into your heart. You really look forward to, secondly, going to church. Corporate need. Everybody in this room has a corporate need. The New Testament is about the church. God established a church. A gathering of born-again believers with a common interest, Jesus, with a common need to be changed, and with a common feeding, that's on the Word. I need that, you need that, we need that. God has given specific instructions in the church, to the church. He's put ministry gifts in the church, not as an option, but as a need. If we didn't need it, he wouldn't have done it. If the church was not necessary, he would not have established it. He's the head of it. He's the cornerstone. He's the pattern. He's everything the church is. In Ephesians 2, he's in the midst of it when we come together. 
For we glorify Him. We give Him glory when we listen. We give Him glory when we are convicted and thinking about Him, making good decisions about our lives. He's blessed because the result of this time is going to be the kind of people that God wants. This is when he brings us together corporately or as a group to instruct us or to edify us or to inform us or to warn us, to give us instruction on how to live, to warn us about the times that we're in or how easy it is for you to give up and quit and change your attitude and let the world begin to talk you out of Jesus. He warns us about that. Even though we get a whisper in our ear that says, oh, you can handle that. That's not that bad with you. You're all right. And you're the one he's talking to. But we need this. We need to come together. The church that I grew up in, the Christian church, we had a pretty good crowd on Sunday mornings, a small building, so it looked like a big crowd, but it was maybe 100 people. I don't know how many people that old building held. Maybe 100 people. We started a Wednesday night service. I don't think we ever had one, but we got a new preacher that probably has some good Baptist leaning, so he wanted to start a Wednesday night service. And so, well, Wednesday? Maybe we got to go to church twice? So we went to church. It was a called assembly. There might have been 20 people there. We used to sit on the front. The whole church came up and sat in the first two or three rows. You know why? Because it's an option. I don't need to be here but one time a week. I don't need to be here all morning. I don't need for the sermon to go past 30 minutes. I don't need all that. That's the attitude of Christianity the way I grew up. We didn't need all of that. I didn't go there because I had a need. I didn't go there because I have a responsibility as a professing Christian to participate in the meeting either by my presence, by listening, or if the gifts of the Spirit move, by letting God use me, which that was never going to happen where I grew up. I have a responsibility to be here. You want to call it a duty, you could. But when I say, well, you know, I went to church on Sunday morning, that's that's all I have to do. Where does it say that? Where does it say that we're limited to one day a week and you've done your duty? If this was not important, we wouldn't be here. There wouldn't be any reason to do this. Sunday morning is a convenient time. We, we had a good night's sleep, sort of, hopefully. You got the rest of the day off. It used to be a day when everything was shut down. Even gas stations and all the malls and everything was shut down. All the big sporting events were on Saturday. Sunday was a day of rest. When I was a kid. And now look how it's changed. The biggest sporting events in the world begin at noon on Sunday. There's no regard anymore for the Lord's day. There isn't. Except by a few that have been born again and have a commitment to Christ and are bothered by the world's indifference to God. So we come together as a church. I don't care what's going on in the world. We come together here because this. I need to get refreshed and refueled here. I pray, God, speak to me this morning. Make my ears to hear truth made just for me. Let me leave this building today 
with something that will refresh me and encourage me or give me something to be convicted about and deal with the rest of the week. Instead of just wandering in here Sunday morning, let's go to church. Because it's more than that. It's supposed to be more than that. God intended for it to be more than that. Man has tried to glamorize this thing, make it bigger, brighter, better, more appealing. The whole thing is about the system. It's not Jesus. And therefore, he's not the focus of our life. We're the focus of our life. Look what we've done, what we're building, how we do it. Look at our results. And we throw the word of God in there every now and then to make it right. I hope to. But coming together as a church is a time for God's believers to fellowship together, to come together. To spend time together, talk together, sing together, worship together. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. It comes from the root word cornea or something like that, corne or something of that sort. My Greek is what it is, it's Greek. <laughs> but that word means common. It's a word that simply means common. And you think about it. The one thing we all have in common is Christ. Everybody in this room is different. Everybody. We're all different in some unique, specific way. But the one thing common to all of us is Christ. That's who we come to rally around and share together because that's who we are to be inspired by and inspired with. Christ. It's Jesus. Our conversation when we get together, it's not about who scored the touchdown. How are you doing? What's the Lord saying to you? Isn't the Lord good? And we begin to share things like that. Oh, praise God. You know, I remember when this church first started here, Shepherdville Christian Assembly, back in a, a different time, I guess. There for several years, the crowd on Sunday morning was the same crowd on Sunday night. It was as big in the night meetings as it was in the morning meetings. I mean, it was a time that those who were there were always there. They came. Now on Wednesday nights here, I should announce to all of you, we do have Wednesday night meetings. Because a lot of people have begun to go drift back into that old religious system of thinking. I don't need it. I got other things to do. The Spirit of God may move in the church tonight. I'll buy the tape. It doesn't necessarily move on the tape. It's a call assembly. Well, sometimes it's pretty uh, dreary. Because you see, people aren't expecting anything to happen anymore. They don't see a need to pray before they get there, a need to hang on to every word. And it gets harder and harder to preach and more and more difficult to teach and less and less interesting to listen to. Something needs to be quickened in us. Something needs to be refreshed. I wish we were like computers. You hit that refresh button and we go back and get started all over again because there is a great need that God has for his church, for his, for his people. Turn to Hebrews 10, and you should take advantage of it. You take advantage of being here for fellowship.
don't be like so many people that attend when they want to. I'm talking to you sitting here right now. Some of you, if you're here, and maybe you I don't know if you're watching or not, you attend if you want to. God never taught you that. You taught yourself that. The Lord wants you doing his bidding. Where he is, you should be. Hebrews 10 and verse 24 through 25, he said, Don't allow yourself to start missing meetings. Don't allow yourself to talk yourself out of your need. Let us consider, verse 24, one another to provoke and to love and good works. How can you do that if you're not with each other? If there's not some kind of consistent gathering together, how can you provoke or encourage each other? How do you do that if you're not here? How do you do it? Well, you can't. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Let me ask you a question. Is that still true? Is that still the manner of some? Well, it is. Trust me with that. It is the manner of some. As is the manner of some. And then he finishes by saying, This is what we should be doing, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I could say not only the day of the Lord, the Lord coming back, but also the things that indicate his coming back. The signs of the times. The degrading of human flesh. We live in an awful moment. You know, there was a time that people cared about each other and about other things beside themselves. I heard a preacher say not long ago that in the last so many years, depression has increased like four or five or ten times. I forget all the numbers. I don't listen to details. I just get the picture. That there's more depression today than at any time in history because people have taken their focus off the family and other people like the church and needs and being all for themselves. They begin to focus on themselves. There's a Bible says lovers of self more than lovers of God. And it doesn't take you long to find out that there's not much in you that has any hope in it. I think it was Confucius who said man all wrapped up in himself makes small package. That's truth. That's the truth. But we have a need. It's your choice. If you don't want to come, nobody's going to make you come. Nobody's going to say, you better get in church and I mean it. It's your choice. It's my choice to be here. It's your choice to be here. You have as much of an obligation to be here as I do. I'm not your hired servant. I'm here because I want to be here. I'm not here because I'm paid to be here. I'm here because I want to be here. This is what I'm called to do. You're called to be here too. Now, thirdly, another reason is the lure of worldly treasures and success. I preach success. I preach the fact that we want to be successful because God does. God promotes prosperity himself. Even 3 John 2, wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers, if it is. But that's what he wants. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. 
it seemed like most of our life, the educational system, the conversation of friends, the desire of parents, is for all of our children and all of us to be successful. I want that for my children. But as I've told them, I don't know if I told them all at once or one at a time, I don't care if you're rich or poor. I just want you to go to heaven. I want you to make it into God's kingdom. Because if you don't, you gain the world, you lose your soul. And what does it profit a man, Jesus said, if you gain the world? You're the biggest dog in the kennel. You're the Indian chief in the financial world. You're worth $15 billion. What good is any of it on the day of your death if on the day of your death you perish? The brief time in this world you made your fortune and had the admiration of so many people who want to be rich. Fact of it is, when you die, you're scratching the same dirt the poor man is. You're sitting on the same fiery bench that the poor man is. There's no difference. Sin makes you a sinner. Sin makes death for everybody that's a sinner to be what it is. That's what it does. Jesus said in Matthew 13 and verse 22, he said, He that hears the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. Matthew 13, he's talking about the sower and the seed. He says he hears the word. He's talking about a man that gave up and left off. He said, here's a man or a woman, a person who hears the word. Now, they become aware of it. It was plain. I understand it. Then why didn't you live it and do it? Why did you leave off from doing what it said? Well, Jesus said, Jesus said, because the cares of this world and the deceitfulness the misrepresentation to your heart, the delusion of riches, caused the word to be choked out of your life. The word care, the word we use for worry and anxiety, also means distraction. Distractions. Things that cloud the picture. Like you're trying to listen to a sermon and you're distracted by somebody's kid crying or crawling or thinking about what you got to do tomorrow or you're worrying about something at home or something after church, like how big will the line be in the restaurant? A lot of distractions. The devil is a master distractor. The Bible said the care of this world, it's distractions. It's what caused one of the reasons that causes all these mental concerns that people have. I mean, it's hard to concentrate on the things of God because you're wondering how you're going to do this. And you heard on the news this morning that this particular problem is coming. And if the government shuts down, uh, the world's going to end. You could, it's just going to end. Oh, yeah. It's just going to end. I mean, because people believe that. But these things begin to distract you. They take your mind off the word which says, here's what you do with that. I cast... All my care, my anxieties and worries, and my distraction, my mental concerns. It's a mental word, marimnia, and it, it has to do with the dividing and the distracting of your mind. And you, the problems that come there. And so you begin to cast that aside. The word deceitfulness in, in Matthew thirteen twenty two, where it says the deceitfulness of riches, again, is a word which has to do with 
delusion. It's the false impression that riches give. How many people go to college with the idea that if I graduate from college with a degree, I'll be rich? I may also work at McDonald's flipping hamburgers, but how many people have this idea that to be rich is what life is about? I mean, to have money. To have money. Money means I can have, I can get, I can go, I can be. Everything that Jesus says you need to die to that will keep you out of his kingdom is the very thing the world promotes and that people pursue with their life. And it's hard for rich people to give up that aspiration to get more and more and more as much as you can and miss churches to have to to get it. Because they're geared that way. They're made that way. It's what the world does to people in their minds. He warns us in this verse, even though your heart says, look at what you could be. Look at how well you could be. If you just cut a few corners, look what you could be. Look, you can always go to church and get religion. But right now, man, when opportunities knock, I know you may shouldn't be doing it like that. But, hey, it's money for your children. Children. Right. Children. We do it for our children. Have a nice home. I mean, every kid needs a bedroom and a private bathroom. What a sorry lie that is. Let me get off subject for one, less than one minute. Children can sleep five to a room and have a good time. On the floor, on two of them in a bed. But not to their parents. Oh, no. We would warp their sense of value. A bathroom in every room. Remember out there where we live? Now Paul's got it to deal with. A little bathroom that's this wide and long from here to there. Four daughters. <laughs> and a smoking war every Sunday morning over who gets mirror time next. I wore that. That's mine. You wore mine last week. I'm so glad they grew up. I prayed one time at the table. We had dinner one time at the table, and my prayer was, Lord, I pray that my children will not kill each other before they're grown. <laughs> well, they got to laughing like you are. I wasn't laughing. I was praying. <laughs> and as far as I can tell, as they did get grown, they didn't seem to be too terribly spoiled. Because you want to spoil your kids, give them whatever they want. The world's trying to. The school system's trying to. The government is doing it. And look at them. <laughs> oh, Jesus. But the lure of worldly treasures, the Bible said they choke the word. You lose time to spend with Jesus. It's harder to give that money you made when you got a lot of it than it was when you didn't have so much of it. You did it cheerfully one time. Now it's, man, can't afford to give that much. I got too many bills to pay. Maybe if you'd listened to the Lord, you wouldn't have had all those bills to pay. Oh, I wouldn't have had anything. Are you saying that God lied? Did God lie when he said, I'll supply your needs? 
He didn't say, I'll supply your greeds, but he said, I will supply your needs. Did he lie? Are you blaming him for your woes? Are the excuses you're making to him for why you can't do what he wants you to do in contrast to what he says you could do? Is he a liar? Nope. We just get ahead of ourselves because we've got this lure of wealth and position and pride and who we are and being looked up to and admired. Look what you got. Wow. Look what we got. Look who we are. Look where we're going. I am somebody. Maybe not. Maybe not. One of the sad verses in the Bible Paul wrote was, Demas hath forsaken me because he loved this present world. See, Demas is one of those guys who started well, missionary, hung in there for a long time, but somewhere in his journey with the Lord, after he'd convinced everybody that he was the real deal, Paul took him on a journey because he was a real deal. This guy is committed to Christ, Demas. But what Paul did not know, that the world never did leave Demas' heart. And at some point out there, Demas just said, you know, that's about all I think I can take. I think I'm about done with this. And he told Paul, I'm going, uh, I'm going back home. And Paul said, what you're going back to is the world. The world, the very thing that snares and destroys is what you're going back to. That's what God brought you out of. And that's what you're going back to. Oh, no, I'm not going back to the world. Yes, you are. You are. Because that was inspired. All of this has given me inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul also wrote, they that will to be rich fall into many hurtful snares and lust. Would you turn to that? First Timothy chapter six and verse nine. First Timothy six and verse nine. For they that will be rich, they that want to be rich, they that are trying and living to be rich. What happens to them? They fall into temptations. And eventually a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Then it's wrong to be rich? He didn't say that. He said they who are trying to be rich. Deuteronomy 28 is a way to wealth, folks. God's way. You delight yourself in the Lord. He says, if you will just diligently give heed to his word, hearken to his word, pay attention to his word, commit yourself to, to just living on his level, he said, all these things shall be added to you. He said, seek first the kingdom of God. He said that all these things will be added. Deuteronomy 28 spells out what some of them are. Leaves nothing out that you're trying to get now. And it's free if you do it his way. But folks, I think a lot of people became wealthy. I remember one man, probably more, but a man who was just a hardworking businessman trying to get ahead in the world. And one day he did. Remember this years ago. One day he did. He hit the big time. And I never saw him again. Even though we prayed about some things one night for a couple of hours in the church, talked to him, maybe an hour after church, about a business venture he had, prayed that this will work. And we talked about some other things. And we prayed earnestly God would bless him. He'd come to the meetings. He was full of joy and everything. It looked like everything was good. I would have voted for him. 
And then money came into his life and never saw him again. It doesn't have to be like that, but too often it is. So people get the idea that money is the root of all evil, but it's not. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. It's putting money before God. Money becomes an idol. It becomes an object of your pursuits. It's what you depend on, what you look to, where your confidence is. It's money. And it always lets you down. Proverbs 4 says it sprouts wings and flies away. You win the lottery, had a million dollars, somebody sued you the next week for a million, now you're still broke. Money has a way of disappearing. And yet God has a way of using money for his glory and to bless you. So a lot of people give up and walk away, I think, because of that. Success. Another reason. Let me give you another one. Another reason that I, that I believe that people forsake the Lord and turn away from the Lord is because they're overwhelmed by adversity or persecution. They start well. They look like the real deal. We would all vote for them. We would all approve of them. They say the right things. They're exuberance, all of that. Matthew thirteen twenty one says, Yet he hath not root in himself. Now listen to this. He hath not, here's a man that heard the word, grabbed a hold of it. Yes, yes, yes. Yet, we didn't see it, God did. He hath not root in himself, but he endures for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, he is offended. He turned back. He couldn't handle the pressure of being rejected, gossiped about, lied about, misrepresented, the stares, the jokes. He couldn't handle that. Christ was his life, but if Christ is going to cost him this much, he's not willing to go that, that far. And so the Bible says that he's the kind of guy that turns back. And yet the truth is, the Bible teaches us that sooner or later, sooner or later, we're all going to face tribulation. We're all going to be persecuted. You're promised, as a promise from God, everybody who is willing to live godly on God's terms will suffer persecution. You're in a world that is your adversary. The world's ruler of darkness is the devil. The world lies in darkness or wickedness. There's nothing in the world that's good for you. We're even warned that if you love the world, you're an enemy of God. You can't have both. You can't love the world and love God. You can't dread leaving the world like Lot's wife did and serve God. You can't do both. You know that God's going to use the things of this world to bless you while you're in the world. But your pursuit has to be the kingdom of God first. That's got to be first. And when you begin to trust the Lord, you're going to get persecuted. Your family usually starts. They hate to see you with such a, at a young age, have such exciting possibilities ahead of you. You have such a good personality, good work ethic. You're such a, an outstanding young man or woman that don't give all of that up for Christ. Don't just say, well, I'm going to trust God for my future. It doesn't work like that. You've got to go to college and learn how to party and get some stupido 
tattoo. Because you got to be like everybody else. That's the way they are. You want to be like them. Yeah, you don't want to be different. Because if you're different, they'll persecute you. You're a virgin? What? <laughs> hey, everybody, did you know that you're... What's wrong with you? That's the world. And if a Christian is not secure in Christ or has never been born again, they don't want the world to harass them like that. They want whatever the world's doing. They want to do it so well. I'm like y'all. And yet God on judgment day says, you missed it. Oh, Jesus. You missed it. You're not allowed in heaven. You knew better. At a tender young age, I talked to you, you cried. You asked me to save you. Then you grew up. You left off being wise. You joined the world. They accepted you. They abused you. They made you unclean. Now I can't even use you. Now you come to church, you can't even listen because of guilt and sin. You never turned from it. You're still doing it persecution. You couldn't handle it. Look what it did. Look what it did. Look where it brought you back down to. Now God didn't even want you. He could, of course. But you turn away. Then when you do go to church, you don't feel worthy to sit there. Why should I go to church and be a hypocrite after what I did last night? Then you quit. You turn back and the devil won. Oh. But when when you get persecuted... When tribulation and chastisement, you begin to suffer. When you begin to go through all the things that God says you're going to go through. Everybody I love, I will chastise them. When I give you the message of faith and you receive it, and you begin to practice faith, you will find tribulation. Didn't James 1 say that? He did. He did say that. James 1. James 1 said, let every man count it all joy. When what? Did he say when or if? Count it all joy if you're ever persecuted. Count it all joy if you have tribulation. Jesus said in John 16, the last verse, he said, in the world you will have tribulation. Why? Because of me. Jesus said, it's not you they hate. John 15 and John 7, the world doesn't hate you. You're one of them. You come out of it. Because of me, the persecution you're getting is me. It's what you're allowing me to be in your life. That's what they hate. And yet, at the end of your life, when death comes and it's over, the only hope you have is that Christ ruled in your life and you escaped the world. Otherwise, you wasted your life. Not long ago, At the point of tears, just thinking about how much God has delivered me from in my life. Had it not been for him and his insistence on hounding me to stay put, I would have gone back. I'd have been a lost man forever. Wouldn't be here. Probably wouldn't be married. I would have been one miserable, wretched soul Haunted by memories, haunted by my past, haunted by opportunities, and had such a dull, 
heart that I can't even do anything about it. Because only when God is near can you call upon him. Did you know that? Seek him while he may be found. Jesus. Turn to Hebrews 12 and we'll close. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, those Hebrews 11, those that are watching, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Remember, that started in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receives. He told you that. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom his father chasteneth not? Well, the lot of them today. But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence or respect. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasures. Now this this verse. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. No chasing for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards, he said, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness in verse 11. In verse 10, why does God have a plan to correct and change and refine us? What's it all about? It's at the end of verse 10. What is it all about? That we might be holy people, right? All the fiery trials, the difficulties, the persecution, the decisions we have to make, the stands we have to make, the line drawn in the stand, oh, all the things that we are wrestling with that many people quit over are all designed to make you to bring a decision that forces you into doing things God's way, which brings holiness in your life. A holy people, a holy nation, people that, that God has, has refined and, and done all that he's done with. We might be partakers of his holiness. It's what's on the front of this pulpit. Holiness unto the Lord. It's what God wants. It's why we're here. We were not holy. when Well, we were holy in the sense that we were attached to God. But we were full of dirt. But this process of, here's a new word, de-dirting finest. De-dirting us. The process of cleansing us never stops because it's God's plan that in the end you be without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. Sanctified, 
set apart and cleansed with the washing of water by the word of God. Will there be a lot of people there? I don't think so. There'll be somebody there. But a whole lot of people in the last days won't make it there. They'll start that way. They'll stay with it for a while, but they will depart from the faith. That's my next to last point. They will give heed to seducing spirits. That's why they leave. But you'll have to wait for next week to get that. I didn't plan it this way. It just happened that way. So you see, there are many reasons. We're all familiar with all this. The more we bring them up and talk about them, the more you're familiar with them. Were it not for the grace of God, you wouldn't even be here this morning. You'd be out there in bed sleeping or watching or going somewhere, caring less what God thinks. The football stadiums today, I don't know their hearts. I don't know what any of them did, where they went before they went to football. I don't know anything about that. But I know that there are football stadiums that are full of people that will spend more with their family on one football game than they'll give to the Lord in two years. Because it costs a lot to go to the football game. And they're, most all of them will be still while you sing the Star Spangled Banner or while some preacher tries to pray whatever you pray at a football game. What do you pray? Like, what do you pray at a car race? What do you pray? Father, bless the car. Which one? What do you pray? God doesn't matter. It's just an idea. It's not a reality. It's just an idea. I mean, you give a little respect to that, but you don't have to devote your life to that. And what we're saying in here today is that you do need to devote your life to it because if you don't, you'll turn away from it. Or you already have. Bow your head with me. Father, in the name of Jesus, deliver us from evil. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.